Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for being here. Wonderful to see you all. Um, and this is uh, an intense time in the world and um, in uh, all of our lives as always, but also uh, an exciting time of light and of Hanukkah this week um, and of recommitting to light over darkness and faith over despair. And this is a very rich topic, which has been very alive for millennia but especially in the last uh, last year um, and last few years around um, various political issues that certainly intersect with uh, Jewish thought. And we have a wonderful teacher here today with us to think about abortion and Jewish law, uh, Rav Sarah Mohern, who is a rabbi, educator, and community builder. She serves as the rabbi of Silverstein Base Lincoln Park, um, a wonderful institution I had the chance to visit just a few months ago uh, through an early tzedek capacity, opening her home and her heart to young adults in Chicago, my hometown. She passionately believes that Torah matters and that Judaism can enrich human life and better society. Rav Sarah is also a nationally regarded Torah educator, frequently teaching in a wide variety of Jewish adult education settings, particularly on topics of ethics, gender, and Jewish practice. As a rabbi, some of her areas of focus include grief support, feminist and queer nida education, and crafting joyful halachic egalitarian life cycle rituals. She's deeply committed to inspiring traditional prayer and is a passionate shilich sibor. Rev. Sarah was ordained by the Rabbinical School of Hebrew College, where she also earned a master's in Jewish education and received private rabbinic ordination from Rev. Daniel Landis, um, who was also taught here at Erlesetic in the past. She's an alumna of Brandeis University, Yeshiva Tadar, Pardes Institute, Drisha Institute, Beit Midrash Harel, the Wexner Graduate Fellowship, and the David Hartman Center Fellowship. She can be reached at sarahmohern at gmail.com or at rav underscore Sarah. So um, thank you so much for being here. We look forward to learning with you. Thank you so much, Ashley. It's such a pleasure to be here. I have been an admirer of Uri Lysetic for more than a decade now, um, so I'm really pleased to be here. And our time is short, so let us jump right in. Um, so as Rafshmuli alluded to, abortion is a very important topic. And I wanna say from the beginning that I think it's important to talk about both because it's legally and politically salient um, and has been for all of my political life and, and certainly in the last year, um, but also because it's personally salient and may impact um, the lives of people in the room or people who are listening to this year. Um, so as we're sort of thinking about this as an ethical and policy issue, we're going to have to be also doing that toggling. Um, this is a fascinating ethical and policy issue. It's also an issue that impacts individuals and families in our community. Um, so I am not an American legal expert, but I think it's fair for me to quickly summarize the American abortion debate as I have come to know it as basically um, having two main poles, right? So one is a group of people who want abortion to be legal always or most of the time um, because it should be the right of a pregnant person to make a sovereign decision about their own body, right? Because of values of rights and, and bodily autonomy, abortion should be legal most or all of the time. The second poll is a group of people who want abortion to be illegal always or most of the time because the fetus is a living person who has the right not to be killed, and the state has an interest in preventing murder. Um, those are the two polls, and then I think group three is a lot of Americans, a lot of folks who are sort of confused or somewhere in between, or have a sometimes yes, sometimes no view, um, but for whom the debate is still mostly framed as a tension between the rights of the fetus 
and the rights of the pregnant person. And this discourse is deeply rooted in and framed by assumptions of both Western enlightenment, right, rights and bodily autonomy, and Christianity, right, questions of when life begins, um, run very deeply in this debate. And so what I want to show you today in our short time together is that the Jewish tradition has a very long and very rich conversation about the ethics of abortion, but it looks quite different from that which I just sort of roughly outlined above. It has different tensions, it has different assumptions about what's at stake, it asks very different kinds of questions. So for example, again, to summarize very roughly, the Jewish legal and ethical tradition generally proceeds from the assumption that life begins after or during the birth process, typically with the first breath. And thus, while it has a deep sense of the high value of a pregnancy and of a fetus, it never thinks that the value of a fetus is equivalent, exactly equal to the value of a human life. Um, and so justifications for forbidding abortion on the basis of life or personhood of the fetus don't really make sense within the discourse that Jews have traditionally engaged with. Similarly, or sort of in mirror image, the Jewish ethical and legal tradition doesn't really care about bodily autonomy for the most part, right? So to choose some examples outside of our area, the Jewish tradition is quite happy to forbid you from getting a tattoo on your own body. It is quite happy to forbid you from doing harm to your own body, right? It doesn't have necessarily this concept that it's your body and your choice. Um, and so arguments that abortion should be permitted because of values of rights to bodily autonomy also don't necessarily really fit within this discourse or make sense to it. Generally, and this is like a very rough, very rough summary, the Jewish discussion around abortion assumes that abortion is a bad thing, but it also assumes that sometimes continuing the pregnancy is a worse thing. And therefore it sometimes forbids, sometimes permits, and sometimes requires abortion but almost entirely on the basis of the reasons why a person wants to end their pregnancy or what bad outcomes are feared if the pregnancy is continued. Because of this, it is also generally much less interested in what stage of fetal development the abortion is being considered at than why it is being considered in the first place. Okay, so that was the like three minute summary. And now if you'd like to, you can sign off. But if you're gonna stick with me for the next 50 minutes or so, here's my plan. Um, what I'm hoping we'll do in this time together is look at some of the core texts which frame how Jews have thought about ethics of abortion for the last several thousand years. Um, and then very quickly, I've brought some summaries of some of the more modern, really fascinating literature of questions and answers about um, abortion of Shalit and Shuvot um, in particular cases um, that have sort of proceeded from these foundational texts. Um, and to show my cards, my hope is not to convince you that this way of thinking about the ethics of abortion is necessarily better than the American way or ways. Um, for myself personally, I'll say that in many cases, I think it is um, wiser, and in other places, I think it's missing very important essential insights. Um, but I, I'm not trying to convince you that it's better, just that it's different, right? And in doing so, to open up the possibility that we might be able to break out of the very narrow ways we've been taught as Americans um, to think about this issue. Um, so that's where we're going. I wanna just pause there um, and, and just check, are there any clarifying questions from the folks in the Zoom room or on Facebook? I didn't understand something you said. I need to understand before we can proceed. Anything of that nature? Okay, so I will keep going. I'll just say a couple other things before I dive in. 
Um, one is that I will toggle between the language of um, pregnant person and woman and mother. Um, I'm trying here to acknowledge that we are engaging here with text which assume that the pregnant person is a woman and a mother, but that we also live in a world in which people of all genders um, are pregnant, can be pregnant, and sometimes need abortion care. Um, and also, I want to say, as I said right at the beginning, we're really going to be thinking about this as an ethical issue, as a policy issue within the Jewish community. Um, but I also am aware this is a very personal issue. Um, I'm in this, you know, very frontal, very short amount of time. Um, I won't be able to make myself available to speak to people personally, but that's why um, I put my email right on the top of the sources. Um, and I'm very happy to be in further conversation with anybody um, about this or any other topic. Um, I am sharing in the link that in the chat box, um, and also Eddie just shared as a PDF um, the sources. Um, and we're going to just dive right in. So here's what I want to do first. First, I want to ask the question, what are the basic principles from which a Jewish conversation about the ethics of abortion proceeds? Um, and I think there are sort of three major questions that we have to answer before we can start to talk about abortion per se to understand what are the assumptions from which this ethical discussion proceeds. So those questions are the following three. What is the legal status of a fetus? Having nothing to do with abortion, just how does our tradition understand the status of fetus? Question two, what is the legal status of feticide? So this might be an unfamiliar word, but feticide is the technical term for a crime in which someone um, causes the loss of a pregnancy. So how does our tradition understand that, a situation in which the loss of pregnancy is not desired? What is the nature of that in the mind of our tradition? Um, and then question three, we have to look at um, how does our tradition understand uh, the status of an abortion that is necessary to save the life of the pregnant person? And once we have those three sort of building blocks in place, we can go into complicate the, co the conversation about the more complex cases um, that we see in our communities and in our world. So that's what we're going to do. Um, so let's start with question one. And if you have the sources, um, we're right here with uh, text one. What is the status of the fetus in uh, the Jewish ethical tradition and in Jewish legal texts. So we have a number of texts which attest to an understanding of the fetus as a part of the body of the pregnant person, right? A fetus is considered as if it is the thigh of the mother. Um, if a pregnant person is converted, the fetus is also converted along with her, right? Um, there's a fascinating rabbinic debate about this, but again, following this assumption that the fetus is fundamentally a part of her body, the conclusion is that the conversion is for the whole system, right? Um, this basic assumption that a fetus is, is, is often seen and conceptualized as a part of the pregnant person's body um, goes through many other rabbinic texts, but I bring these two as sort of representative. I want to dive in now to what I've got here as, as case uh, text three, which is a really important um, and very early text. So this text is from the Mishnah, first and second century rabbinic material. They're dealing here with the question of a woman who has been um, found guilty of a capital crime and is also pregnant. And the ruling of the rabbis is that the, the court does not wait on the execution until her pregnancy is completed, right? The thinking here is that in rabbinic thought in general, um, delaying of capital uh, punishment is considered to be a 
a very high level of psychological torture. In the rabbinic court system, if a person is found guilty of a capital crime and is going to be executed, they have to be executed immediately, that day, the next day at the latest. Um, and the idea here is that whatever is lost in terminating the pregnancy along with the mother's death, it is trumped by the suffering that would be caused if she was forced to wait many weeks or many months for the execution. And so we're told we execute her even though that will necessarily also cause the end of the pregnancy. And the only exception is if she is already in active labor. So up until the point of active labor, um, we will execute her and spare her the psychological suffering of waiting on her execution. And only if she's already in active labor do we let her complete um, the birth and then um, finish the punishment of capital crime. Okay, so the Talmud asks about this, a fascinating question, which is, here in text four, the question is, isn't that obvious? Like, why did you even need to tell us that you should not wait and that you should execute her? Um, don't we already know that it's sort of a fundamental principle in, in our understanding that a fetus is not a distinct unit or person, but simply a part of the mother's body? And the answer that the Gemara gives is that the mission need, needs to tell us this, because otherwise you might have the thought, the wrong thought, that the fetus is the property of its father. In other words, you might have thought that she should have to continue the pregnancy because the father of the fetus has some sort of claim, legal claim on this potential child, and that she should have to continue the pregnancy and give birth before she's executed. Um, and therefore, the Mishnah told us that that's not the case in order to reject that kind of thinking. You might have thought that the fetus has a legal status as belonging to its father, as a potential future heir or child for him. No, this Mishnah comes to remind us, says the Gemara, that we return to this core idea, the status of the fetus is as a part of its mother's body for the duration of the pregnancy until the point of active labor. Okay, so just a few other examples of the ways in which it's quite clear in Jewish law that um, a fetus does not have legal status as a person, um, cannot um, transfer property to a fetus, we see here in text five. Um, you can't set up your will um, so that the fetus will inherit you until after the child has actually been born. Um, this text six is a very emotionally complicated text, but mourning practices are not observed um, for the loss of a fetus or a pregnancy. Um, as someone who has lost beloved pregnancies, this has both been a relief and an emotional challenge. And there's a whole topic in and of itself. But it's important for our purposes just to notice that mourning laws only come into play once the child has been born and has that legal status. Um, and we even have some texts that sort of go even farther than that, saying that in the early stages of pregnancy, I'm looking here at text seven, um, up until 40 days from conception, which would be something like, um, seven and a half weeks uh, pregnant in our current um, way of talking about it. Um, we don't even think of the fetus as a fetus and a body part, but actually it's just sort of water. Um, this maybe makes more sense in a world where they don't have fetal imaging technology, right? And, and when you have a pregnancy loss this early on, there's not necessarily something um, that would be seen in the same way as a later pregnancy loss. Um, and that may explain this conception, but there's a sense that in the very early days, there's really nothing there at all. And then um, after seven and a half weeks or so on, 
um, there is a fetus, but a fetus is not, as we've seen, in the status of a person. Um, I do want to show these two texts, text eight and nine, just to show that while the tradition is quite clear that the fetus is not a person um, and does not have legal status, it's not, um, it's not that the tradition doesn't think that a fetus and a pregnancy might have tremendous value. Um, so for example, here in text nine, we see the case of a woman who is in labor on Shabbat um, and she dies um, and they want to know if they can perform a C-section. So an important thing to know is that now, thank God, we have C-sections um, and it's a relatively minor medical procedure and many people um, have, have done, but for most of classical um, history, a C-section was something that only happened after the mother had died and it's a sort of last ditch desperate attempt to cut out and save the fetus that's about to be born baby. So the question here, the legal question on the, on the table is, can we perform this C-section? Um, the mother has already died. In order to save the fetus soon to be baby, it will involve violations of Shabbat, right? They're imagining that you have to go get the knife and maybe carry it in the public domain, both, both of which are forbidden on Shabbat. You're imagining that maybe the cutting itself um, into the into the mother's body is a violation of Shabbat. So the point being here that the, the rabbis have outlined a tension between Shabbat, which um, obviously for them not violating Shabbat is very, very important. Um, it's a, one of the most important things in the rabbinic worldview, right? Um, is in tension with the fetus. And the fetus is not a person, right? It isn't alive. Um, and yet um, we want to save it. And the, and the ruling here is that of course, um, you, can, you can perform the C-section and save the life of the fetus now baby. Um, but I think the fact that they're even doing this consideration, right, is like, what's going on here, right? So they say, um, you know, why do we have to teach this? We already know that, for example, if someone is trapped under um, a, a rubble of a building that's been destroyed on Shabbat, you can violate Shabbat to um, save that person's life even to attempt to save that person's life, even if you don't know for sure whether or not they're alive or dead. Um, and the Gemara comes and tells us, right, that the reason why we have to know this special case is that the person under the rock slide or the clocked house was alive at the moment that the house collapsed. They were sort of had a presumptive status of being alive. Whereas this child doesn't have a presumptive status of being alive, right? They haven't been born yet. They're not alive yet. Um, and yet, even so, you can take them out from the body, which is sort of conceptualized here as the thing that is trapping this potential life, um, and even at the cost of violating Shabbat, um, in order to save this potential person, even though they haven't been born yet. Um, so I think this is just a text that shows us that the rabbis maintain this tension beautifully, that um, no, a fetus is not a person, they're not alive, they don't have the same value as a born person, and also their value is tremendous. This value of a fetus, especially this fetus, which is about to be a baby, is about to be born, is worth violating Shabbat. Um, we also have this other more literary text, which I think in text nine sort of helps complete this picture. It's about the case of a pregnant woman um, who has a miscarriage because she's frightened by a dog. And the question is basically, so can she sue the owner of the dog? Um, and the conclusion is basically that she can't really sue the owner of the dog. Um, but the language of the text, right, that the, the owner of the dog has done a terrible thing. The owner of the dog has caused the holiness, the divine presence 
to depart from the Jewish people. Um, and this doesn't seem to be the case of a, of a baby who's like about ready to be born, just of a pregnancy that's sort of proceeding apace on track, a healthy pregnancy. Um, so I think this is helpful language. Um, again, distinguishing this is not a life, this is not a person, but um, its value is tremendous, right? A, a pregnancy is a very valuable thing and, and the loss of a pregnancy is a, is a loss of holiness and a departure of the divine presence. Um, so just to summarize, right, our first question was, what is the legal status of the fetus? I think we showed really clearly that it's mostly conceptualized as a part of the mother's body. It's certainly not understood as a person. Um, it, we don't mourn for it. We don't let it inherit. Um, and yet it's also seen as, as a valuable and important thing. Okay, so that's our first question. Um, let's do the second question. So the second question is, what is the status of feticide, right? What is the status of the situation in which someone causes someone else to lose a pregnancy? So here we have really our um, primary, maybe our only um, biblical text that is Deeply, deeply relevant. Now, I want to be careful about how relevant it is. This is not a text about abortion, right? But this is a text about um, the loss of a pregnancy and the legal status of that loss. So let's just read this text together. So we're in the book of Shemot, Exodus, and we're told um, about a case of two people who are fighting, right? Two men are fighting, and one of them pushes a pregnant person, and a miscarriage results, but no other damage. And we're told that in that case, the person who pushed her is responsible for a fine, has to pay a financial settlement to the woman's husband. Um, the payment is based on some kind of reckoning or calculation. Um, if other damage ensues, the penalty is life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Okay, so let's unpack this. This is a complicated text, requires a little bit of background knowledge. So the first thing we have to know is that in biblical law, if a person intentionally kills another person, the punishment is, that is a capital crime, the punishment is the person is executed. If a person unintentionally kills another person through some kind of negligence, they need to flee to um, uh, an Irmiklat, a city of refuge. Um, so the first thing that's clear here is that the person who pushed the pregnant woman and caused her to have a miscarriage is committing a crime, but the crime is neither murder nor manslaughter. And we know that it's not murder because it's not a capital punishment. And we know that it's not manslaughter because he doesn't have to flee to the army cop. So whatever the crime of feticide is here, it's something different than either murder or manslaughter. Um, and the question is exactly what is it, right? So why is it that he has to pay a fine? Um, so there's a couple of different possibilities, um, and the commentaries go into a lot of debate about these two possibilities. One possibility, I think the most likely possibility, is that in general, in the biblical legal system, the punishment for assault is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? Um, at least on the level of chat, the rabbis reject the idea that this was ever the system, but on a simple read of the biblical text, it seems that if, God forbid, I punch Rabbi Shmuley and I break his nose, then surely it gets to break my nose, right? That seems like that's the system. And so one possibility here is that the problem is that the pregnant person has been caused to miscarry. The person who did the crime is not himself pregnant and therefore we can't cause him to miscarry. And so in the absence of an ability to do a perfect eye for an eye um, kind of situation, he pays a fine. 
Um, other Rishonim, other commentaries think that the reason that he pays a fine has to do with the fact that he was intending to push the other man and accidentally pushed her. And so there's some sort of like in-between kind of intentionality in his harm of her. Um, but I think for our purposes, what we can see here is that causing someone to have a miscarriage against their will is clearly a crime. It seems to be a crime akin to assault, but it is clearly neither murder nor manslaughter. Okay, so let's zoom forward in Jewish history to the Mishnah Torah. Um, this is, we're in the Middle Ages. This is Maimonides. He brings this down and summarizes that. A person who causes a, a woman, uh, who strikes a woman and causes her to miscarry, in this case, he takes out the intentionality, right, even if it was totally intentional, is liable, right, he's committed a crime, um, whether or not it was intentional or unintentional. Um, he has to compensate the woman's husband, and let's just sort of notice from our feminist perch that it's the husband that is compensated, um, which is obviously complicated on the one hand um, that the woman and her husband are an economic unit, so maybe that makes sense. On the other hand, um, there's not an acknowledgement necessarily of the harm done to her as we would maybe want to see. You must compensate her husband um, financially um, for the value of the fetus, and then he must compensate her additionally for injury and pain and medical costs, just like in any other assault case. So generally in Rabbinicois, when I punch Rabbi Shmuley, I which I don't want to do, I love you Shmuley, um, I, he doesn't get to break my nose. I have to pay for his doctor's appointments and I have to pay him a fine for the humiliation he suffered and for the pain he suffered. So what the Ramam is telling us here is that all of those same things will have to be paid to this woman for her pain and for her medical treatment. And maybe if she misses time on work and whatever, and there was an additional payment for the value of the fetus. So this just continues to, to sort of create this image. The fetus is a thing of tremendous value. It's not a person. The crime of suicide is a terrible crime. It's not uh, the crime of murder or even of manslaughter. Um, this, by the way, does not necessarily um, clarify for us the question of is the status of an abortion that is desired, right, that is requested, but it's helping to um, get us closer to understanding the picture. I want to just bring one other text in, in answering this question from the Gemara in Sanhedrin. Um, and the Gemara Sanhedrin asks the question, which is, why do we have two different verses? One that says, if you fatally strike a man, an ish, you have to be executed, you're put to death. And another verse that says, if you um, kill a person using the word nefesh, um, you should be put to death, right? It seems like those two verses are saying the exact thing, same thing and, and are redundant. So the Gemara is going to say, no, we have to have both verses. Each one is telling us something different. Um, if the merciful one, if God had only told us one who fatally strikes a man, I might have thought that only the killing of an adult and not a minor is a capital punishment. And therefore, the Torah comes to tell us anyone who kills a nefesh, a soul, to include that also, of course, killing children is a capital crime. Um, and then it has to do it in the reverse, right? If God had only said the nefesh verse, I might have thought, right, that, that a person is um, executed even for killing a fetus or a, a, a newborn who is not viable. This is also a very complicated issue, but um, in some parts of Jewish history and in some Jewish texts, um, very premature babies were sort of understood as more like fetuses. Um, it's a topic for another day. Um, but in our case here, they're saying, no, that's not the case. Um, you know, a fetus is a nefesh. A fetus is a, a soul or a fetus is a life force. 
Um, but it's not a it's not a person, and therefore it's not murder. It's not a capital crime. Okay, so now we've answered our first two questions. What's the status of fetus, and what's the status of feticide? The status of feticide is that it's terrible, right, to cause someone to miscarry against their will is a terrible assault, but it is not murder or manslaughter. Okay, so now we get into the question of abortion. Abortion um, is a very old phenomenon. Um, in most of the classical texts, the kind of abortion that we see is very late term. Um, and in fact, it's even often happening during the birth process, right? They didn't really have the technology to safely um, have abortion earlier until later in medical history. Um, but during the classical period, sometimes uh, if the birth was going very poorly, a decision would be made to um, cut up the baby, cut up the fetus in order to save the life, life of the mother. Rachel, I see your hand. I'm gonna pause for questions very shortly. Um, so we have here in text 13, um, again, we're in the Mishnah, we're back in the first or second century. Then in a case where a woman is having difficulty giving birth, um, it is permitted, it is, they, they do, it's correct to cut up the child and bring it out piece by piece because the life of the mother takes precedence to the life of the fetus. Um, and this makes sense given everything we've seen so far, right? The mother is a human being who has been born and is a life. The fetus is very important, but it is not a living person. And therefore, if God forbid you're in a terrible situation where you have to choose between the life of the mother and the life of the baby, the fetus, during the birth, um, you precedent, the, the, the mother goes first. That's the clear conclusion. Um, the mother's life takes precedence. And so it, based on this text, right, any abortion that is to save her life is not permitted and maybe even required, right? And the text gives us only one and very important exception, which is that if the baby has already crowned, right, the baby has already come out more than halfway, and there's a whole bit of debate about exactly how you would define that. Um, is it when the head comes out? Is it when it takes its first breath? This is, we're talking about another seconds, but the baby is halfway out, um, perhaps in a situation where the baby has become stuck. In that case, you can't um, do anything to the baby. The baby is already halfway born, um, and you have to sort of let it play out. Um, you have to let it play out because we have a, another ethical principle that you don't choose between two human lives in this way. Um, we're going to see one more text that's going to explain this more, but Rachel, I saw you had a hand up. Do you have a, a question? Do you want me to clarify something? Yeah. Um, yes, please. Hi. So. Hi, nice you to see you. Um, you said that we only have reference to these later procedures, these almost up to birth procedures in Talmud. But obviously, we know that abortion in earlier in pregnancy existed in those eras. So do you think this is just a case yeah. of the so, rabbis were a bunch of dudes who didn't know? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we do know from Greek and Egyptian medical stuff that there were various kinds of herbs and potions that women took in an attempt to induce miscarriage. Um, it may be that the rabbis don't know about it so much. It may be that they just weren't really all that effective. Um, it may be that they think this is the most important case ethically to deal with. We're going to see a reference to um, sort of medical abortion, which presumably is happening much earlier in the pregnancy, um, starting in the Middle Ages. Um, but at this early level, layer of rabbinic text, they're really thinking about a very late term, right? That's during the birth process. Yeah. 
It's a great question. That's really um, interesting. And we should keep our, we can continue, we can continue to keep our eye on that. Um, thank you. So I just want to show this. No, thank you. It's a great question. Um, I want to show this next text because it's um, sort of working with and expanding text 13. So text 14 becomes one of the sort of core, and anytime you're having a conversation about the ethics of abortion in Jewish thought, this text is going to come up. Um, the Talmud and Sanhedrin. So let's read it quickly together. So Rafuna says that if a minor is pursuing another person in order to kill them, the pursued party may be saved with the pursuer's life. Okay, so the question is, in general in Jewish law, we have the principle that if Rav Shmuley, I'm sorry, I'm making you my example every time, is chasing me with a clear intent to kill me, I can kill him in order to save my own life, right? Generally, we don't precedent one person's life over the other, but if Shmuley has shown clear intent and he's chasing me down, I can kill him in order to save my own life. Um, we have also, of course, all sorts of debate about how do I know that he's showing clearly that he's trying to kill me and what if I can disable him instead, right? So that's a, another share for another day, but that's the general principle. But the question here that's complicated is, is that true if the person pursuing me is a minor, right? They're not a legal actor. They wouldn't be uh, liable for capital punishment. So how can I do this? Um, but the Gemara says, in order to save my own life, I can kill a minor who's trying to kill me. Um, right, the Gemara goes on to explain, Rav Huna maintains that a pursuer does not generally require forewarning. This is a, a debate, do I have to warn my pursuer that I'm about to kill him in self-defense? Um, and there's no difference between an adult and a minor. Rav Chista raises an objection to this from an earlier source. So he brings our source, if a woman is giving birth and her life is being endangered by the fetus, the life of the fetus may be sacrificed in order to save the mother, but once the head is emerged, it may not be harmed in order to save the mother because one life may not be pushed aside for another life. Right? So he's making a sort of difficult analogy here um, where the fetus is like the pursuing uh, minor. Right? If one is permitted to save the pursued party by kill killing the minor, why is it that we can't kill the fetus once it's already partially born? So let's just understand his question. His question is, if in general, if a child was attacking me to kill me, I could shoot that child to save my own life. Why is it that once the baby has crowned and is halfway out, I can't still kill it to save the mother's life because it's pursuing her, right? So just to be clear, the Gemara here is not even taking any question with the, with the idea that up until this point, the mother's life should be precedented over the baby's life. The only question is, at, even after this point, even when the baby is halfway born, maybe we should still um, put the mother first because the baby is a kind of pursuer. Um, and the answer is no, that's not the right way to conceptualize this. It's different because the fetus uh, is not the pursuer, heaven is the pursuer or the situation is the pursuer. In other words, up until the point in time that the baby has crowned and is, is halfway out, we should put the mother's life before the fetus's life because the mother is a person and the fetus is not a person. At the point where the baby is halfway out, we shouldn't conceptualize the danger to the mother as being caused by the baby. We should con conceptualize it as a dangerous situation caused by the universe in which two humans are caught up and we can't choose between them. Okay, so what's important to know about this Gemara, right, is that in the end, um, right, we're rejecting this idea that the baby is the pursuer, right? Um, but, but somehow this metaphor, like, gets 
caught up in Jewish uh, thinking and, and, and continues to be one that um, we'll see in future texts and we'll see um, sometimes in Jewish conversations and debate around this topic. But in its original context, it's actually rejected. No, the fetus, the baby is not a pursuer and cannot be killed to save the mother. There are two people caught up in a terrible situation. And so after the point where the fetus has become a baby, has become a person, you can't pick between the two of them. Up till, you know, until that point, of course, you can. Um, and you have to still do the life-saving abortion. So we see this very clearly um, explained in Rashi, who is interpreting this section of the Talmud. Rashi says um, on the phrase, the baby's head has emerged. When a woman is experiencing difficulty giving birth and is in danger, the midwife extends her hand and cuts it up and extracts the pieces. Um, as the entire time that has not gone out into the air, it is not considered a life. Um, and so it is possible to kill it to save the mother. But once the head comes out, we cannot touch it or kill it. It is like a born baby. And we do not push off one soul for the sake of the other. So that's, I think, a good summary of the simple meaning of the Gemara. Um, but you'll see here in the Rambam, he sort of uses this metaphor of the pursuer, um, even though the Gemara has rejected it. So he says um, in his section having to do with questions of self-defense, that you are forbidden for taking pity on the life of someone who is trying to kill you. And on this basis, our sages ruled that when complications arise and a pregnant woman cannot give birth, it is permitted to cut the fetus in her womb, whether with a knife or with drugs. There's your medical earlier term abortion, Rachel. Cut the fetus either with a knife or with drugs. The fetus is considered like a pursuer of its mother. So even though the Gemara actually sort of rejects that metaphor, he takes that up as a way for understanding why can we um, terminate the pregnancy because it is a danger to its mother. Um, however, if the head of the fetus has emerged, it should not be touched. One life cannot be sacrificed for another. And if the mother dies, this is the nature of the world. Um, so we can see we have this sort of debate forming, um, but actually the, the terms of the actual implications are pretty clear. Any abortion that is, um, going to save the mother's life is permitted and maybe even if you read the, the Rambam, maybe even required, right? Because he says it's actually forbidden um, to, to, to do mercy on the thing that, on the pursuer, right? So it's certainly permitted to have any kind of life-saving version, maybe it's even required. Um, just as a kind of side note, some folks may have seen people using this Rambam to try and argue that actually there is a Jewish conception of the fetus as a human, um, and of killing the fetus as killing of a human. In other words, it, that the fetus is a human and it can be killed um, in self-defense, just like I could kill, God forbid, Rabshmuli in self-defense if he was attacking me. Um, and they do this on the basis of the fact that the Mishnah Torah, the Ramam uses this language of rodas, which is typically language which is applied to a human. Um, but I just want to bring text 15 here to show that actually the Ramam does that all over the place. He uses the language of rodas to talk about inanimate objects. Um, when a ship is about to sink because it's heavily loaded, you can throw other people's stuff off the side, right? And you're not liable for theft because the cargo is like a road death. The cargo is a pursuer that is going to kill the passengers, right? So we can see here that actually this interpretation, um, that the fact that he uses the language of road death somehow means that the fetus is a human in contrast, in contrast distinction to everything that the Jewish tradition has set up until this point, um, is, is really false. He just uses this language to talk about cases where um, normally it would be a crime for me to steal Eddie's stuff and throw it over the side of a boat. 
Um, but it's not a crime if, I, if, that, if the stuff is going to cause the book to sink and I'm saving a life. Um, so anyhow, we've now answered our three foundational questions. Uh, what is the status of fetus? What is the status of fetocide? And what is the status of a life-saving abortion, which is that it is permitted and maybe even required? Um, I'll just pause quickly. Any other questions? I want to show one more thing before I open up for broader questions, but any other kind of clarifying questions at this point? Great. I know we're going fast. This should be like a six-month seminar, but we're going to get the big building blocks in place. So the important thing to, think, to say at this stage is like, okay, great. But what about like all the other cases? right? The case where like, I'm about to die if I don't terminate this pregnancy is quite obvious in the Jewish way of thinking. But what about all the other cases? Um, and so here I want to bring a quote from uh, Rabbi, Dr. I believe, David Feldman, um, who wrote an incredible book, which you should all go out and read, called um, Birth Control in Jewish Law, where he deals with all sorts of questions of sex and sexual ethics and birth and reproductive ethics in Jewish law. And he has an incredible section on abortion, and I think he summarizes um, the later literature there very, very helpfully. So um, sort of as I replied to Rachel, what happens is that once abortion becomes a m much more of a medical reality where sort of reliably and consistently pregnancies can be terminated in sort of the early modern period, um, we see an explosion of rabbinic literature, mostly in the form of shalot and shubot, of people writing questions to rabbis, can an abortion be per performed in X case? And Rabbi writes back, yes or no. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of literature. So uh, Feldman here um, summarizes what happens in that literature in a way that I think is very helpful. What generaliz generalizations can be made about the rabbinic attitude to abortion? We're in text 16. The discourse can best be described as bifurcating in two directions. Both schools of thought will presume that a fetus is not a person. But one approach builds down and the other builds up. The first approach, which is identified especially with the late chief rabbi Unterman, um, based on his and his school's their reading of this, the Rambam that we just saw, sees abortion as similar to homicide. So they use this language of similar to homicide, although it's very important to note um, that they don't actually understand it as homicide. They don't understand it as a capital crime. They don't think that you would have to martyr yourself rather than perform an abortion if you were a doctor, but they use this very strong language of similar to murder um, or homicide, actually, that's important. And therefore, um, because it's similar to homicide, abortion is only permissible in, permissible in cases of corresponding gravity, such as saving the life of the mother, okay, right? So for this school, abortion is fundamentally forbidden unless it's a life-saving procedure. But then what happens is they then build down, the school builds down from the strict position to embrace a broader interpretation of life-threatening, including a threat to her physical or mental health, or at, in it, for example, as well as any threat to her life. So basically what happens is they say in this school, abortion is basically forbidden, it's very, very bad, unless it's life-saving, and then they come and have a very, very wide definition of what it looks like to save a life. Um, which results in permitting large number of abortions that maybe are not, in a strictly speaking sense, life-saving. Life the other school of thought, which is identifiable with the late Rabbi Chief, Chief Rabbi Uziel and others, based on the Rashi that we saw, assumes that there's actually no prohibition against abortion at all. Um, 
except maybe if it's not about any kind of life-saving and at the very end of the pregnancy, but basically it's not forbidden. And then it builds up from this fundamentally lenient position in some circumstances to safeguard against indiscriminate abortion or social ill. So we'll see a few examples, but this other school basically says abortion is basically not forbidden at all. It's not forbidden, um, but maybe we don't want to permit it in this case because it's going to cause some kind of tremendous social ill. So let's just see a few examples because I think that will make this make more sense. So in this first school, the building down school, right, the school that says it's fundamentally forbidden unless a life of the pregnant person is being saved, but then they're going to expand the definition of what saving the life looks like to, to include many, many cases. So, um, for example, Rabbi Yosef permits an abortion in the case of a person who's previously had three C-sections because um, in the fourth pregnancy, she would either have to do a VBAC, um, a vaginal delivery, which carries a significant risk of uterine rupture, or another C-section, and C-sections are dangerous, and so she's allowed to get an abortion. Um, the Sis Eliezer deals with the fascinating case of a person who is pregnant and then, God forbid, receives a cancer diagnosis. And actually, the question which she receives is, is she allowed to have, is she allowed to keep the pregnancy? Right, because the doctors have told her that she must get a pregnancy so that she can continue um, or she can begin aggressive cancer treatment, and also out of concern that the pregnancy itself may expedite the progression of the cancer. Um, and so the question is, if she wants to um, reject the the doctor's advice and put herself into danger to keep the pregnancy, may she? Right, because maybe she's not allowed to. Maybe she's required to get the abortion to save her own life. So he says that if she is very convinced that she wants to keep the pregnancy, she can. But of course, if she's willing to get the abortion, um, she can and she should um, because of this need to get the cancer treatment. Um, and then he sort of goes on to say more generally, also if her health is poor, to cure her or to relieve her from pain, right? So now, even if she's not in danger of any danger at all, but she's just in pain, it is necessary to abort the fetus, right, to deal with this pain. Even if there's not any actual danger, there's room to permit. So now we've said that the definition of life-saving includes actual life-saving, also saving your health, and also um, not experiencing physical pain. Um, then we have the question of, of mental health. So in general, all the literature about mental health and abortion in Jewish ethics assumes that threats to the mental health are equivalent to threats to the physical health. And the question is only what does a life-threatening mental health circumstance look like? So the strictest position, the position of Rob Unterman, is that you would have to actually um, see suicidal ideation. But others, including a Mordecai Winkler, permit abortion in any case where there's significant um, risk to the, to the pregnant person's mental health. Um, he uses a language where she's in danger of losing her mental health, right? So now the definition of life-saving is expanded to include any threat to the mental health. Um, then we get into the question, what if the person who's being threatened by the pregnancy is uh, not the pregnant person, but someone else? So, for example, maybe the pregnancy is making it impossible for her to nurse um, an older child who, for some reason, um, cannot switch to formula. Uh, in that case, the pregnancy is um, allowed to be terminated. Um, and then we get to sort of the most expansive, which is the question of uh, fetal abnormalities, right? What if the person or potential person who is that threat is actually the fetus itself? Um, and here uh, Feldman also summarizes beautifully. Um, this is text 17. I won't read it, but you can read it. And he basically says that 
Um, what happens in the ethical tradition, which the Jewish ethical tradition, which I think is fascinating um, and maybe a great answer to some places where uh, secular uh, abortion ethics really get stuck, is that if a person asks for an abortion to spare the child because they're worried about the future health of the child, it is typically forbidden um, because we don't know what it's like to be a disabled person and, and we don't know whether this person would want to live or not. And also it's not permitted to kill disabled people, right? Because of their disabilities. And so just because you know that the fetus will be mentally, physically disabled is not a reason to abort it. However, if in that exact same pregnancy, the pregnant person were to request the abortion on the basis of the fact that the idea of this, the suffering of this child causes her suffering, the pregnancy would be permitted to be terminated for, to spare her the suffering. Right. So, for example, we have a response where a person um, is concerned that their child will be an epileptic because of genetic reasons. And we're told you can't have an abortion in order to spare this theoretical person the experience of epilepsy. But you could have the abortion to spare yourself suffering if you are suffering over this idea. Um, similarly, uh, in the case of uh, thalidomide, I'm probably saying it wrong in the 60s was a a drug that a lot of women took and then was found to cause terrible birth defects. So um, Rob Jake Jacobowitz in London said that, um, you know, physical or mental defects in no way compromise the claim to life. So you can't have an abortion because of your concern about the defects for this child. However, if we fear that the continuation of the pregnancy would have debilitating psychological or life effects on the mother, that alone can justify um, the abortion. But goes a little farther in his, his famous response on Tay-Sachs, um, and he actually says that not only the suffering of the mother, but also the suffering of this um, child who would have this terrible condition, which is not terrible and is incredibly uh, painful, um, can be taken into account and that they both permit the abortion for both reasons. So anyways, what we can see here, and these are obviously all very morally and emotionally complicated texts, but we see this expansion of basically abortion is terrible, it's forbidden unless it's life-saving, but life-saving can mean a huge spectrum of things. Um, I know we're running out of time, so I'll just quickly to show the other side. The other side assumes that abortion is basically totally permitted, and they just kind of get ca caught up in like, you know, Rav Yosef Trani in the 16th century says, you know, it's, totally, it's not homicide at all. Um, maybe there's some violation of like the responsibility to procreate, but he sort of suggests that you should have some reason. Um, I don't believe that anyone has ever had a, a, a pregnancy termination for no reason, but he does say, you know, you can't do it for no reason. You must have at least some reason. Um, and where this really comes to be a debate is there's a debate about the case of a person who wants to get an abortion because the child was conceived through adultery and basically they don't want to get caught. Um, and so there are some who say, you know, obviously abortion is totally permitted, but that's a terrible reason to have an abortion. And if you permit it, everyone's going to go out and do adultery all the time. So even though abortion is basically permitted, you should tell this person that it's not um, in order to, to disincentivize abortion, uh, not abortion, to disincentivize adultery. Um, but the vast majority of the voices actually say that the humiliation she would experience from um, being forced to carry this pregnancy and, and have this child, uh, the humiliation she would experience um, for, for it being revealed that she um, committed adultery is, is a, a itself enough suffering to justify the abortion. Actually, she can get the abortion to pre prevent this shame. 
Um, but you see here the kind of other side of the move, which is basically abortion is basically fundamentally permitted, um, but you know maybe there are some cases where it would have sort of bad knock-on effects or bad social effects. Um, I'll just end by saying a couple other really important cases of note, um, which don't fall neatly into either of these categories, but I think I'll show them because if not, people will probably ask about them. Then I'll open for questions. One is the case of um, pregnancies conceived through rape. Um, this is actually generally a pretty simple question because you just say that the psychological torture of being um, forced to carry the pregnancy if one doesn't want to under those circumstances is, is certainly enough suffering to justify. Um, but we do actually have texts that say um, sort of because the pregnancy was created illegitimately or illegally um, forced on her that that in and of itself is a justification. Um, I wanted also to mention this case where um, a woman um, tells her husband that she doesn't want any more children and if she gets pregnant again, she's going to have abortion um, that he doesn't want her to have. Um, and the rabbi in that case ruled that while she shouldn't do such a thing and then sort of bad child and buy it, um, she can't be divorced for that, right? There's no, she can't be divorced without her, her, her settlement for, for that. It's not a crime. Um, and then this last, and, and I'll, I'll just end here, this last case, which is somewhat controversial, which is the, the question of economic need, which in some ways is the case maybe that comes up um, the most in our sort of horrible dystopian society. Can you get an abortion because you don't think you can support this child? Um, and fascinatingly, in both schools, the answer is usually no, because the rabbi will say the child, the family should not get, uh, the woman should not get an abortion, and the Jewish community is now obligated to financially support this family. Um, or in some of the cases of Israeli post-game, the state of Israel should give the family a stipend, a monthly stipend, um, so that they don't feel like they have to get an abortion for economic reasons. So this is a, also a whole conversation we could open up, but sort of a, a fascinating um, trend in the Jewish conversation around abortion ethics, which says if um, you are feeling backed into a corner to get an abortion for economic reasons, we should solve the economic problem and not terminate the pregnancy. Um, so I'll just, I'll just end. Um, I brought here also a quote from Rabbi Michael Broid, who um, testifies that sort of sociologically, many of these more, um, uh, uh, the rabbis who forbid abortion in more cases, actually rather than forbidding, would simply encourage the person to go ask one of their more lenient colleagues, which is sort of a, a fascinating sociological uh, note. Um, but I'll just end by saying this is obviously a very complex um, topic, but if I had to sum it up in a couple of sentences, I would say that the Jewish ethical and legal discussion on abortion doesn't like abortion for the most part. It thinks it's sad, um, but it almost always is going to permit this abortion, right? It might not like abortions, but it's almost always going to permit your abortion if you say that you need one. Um, and I think this is helpful, just again, for being different and allowing us to think, remember that there are different ways to think about this issue. Um, and also because it sort of allows us to break out of this binary where abortion is either not a big deal or murder, right? And talk instead about abortion as a, an often difficult, generally weighty, and very often right decision that real people have to make. Um, I think the question of whether this is an empowering um, way of thinking about abortion is really complicated. Um, Dr. Michal Rauscher has written beautifully about this, right? On the one hand, you have rabbis who are making decisions about women. They're not being told that they're empowered to make their own decisions or that their bodily autonomy is at the center of this conversation. On the other hand, um, 
in any case where you can articulate that this pregnancy is causing you suffering, you're going basically to be told your suffering matters um, and therefore you should get this termination if you need it, um, which I think could be a very uh, pastorally empowering process um, depending on how it's handled, certainly. So I'll end there. I know we only have five minutes left and I was supposed to leave 10, um, but I'm happy to also stay a little late or people can email me and I'm happy to take whatever questions we can fit in in the last five or six minutes there. Thank you so much, Rabbi Sarah. Um, folks, you are free to unmute yourself. Just raise your hand or uh, unmute yourself and you're able to ask a question. Um, before we uh, go ahead and fully open, there is a question online uh, for you, Rabbi Sarah, um, that says, I know you said this is not simple, but how can we simply explain that Judaism isn't fully pro-abortion? Yeah, I mean, I think I've, unfortunately, I found myself sometimes in the um, situation of having to give quotes for newspaper articles on this topic, and you know they're not going to print your hour-long discourse, so I have typically said something like, you know, Jewish traditional teaching on abortion is not pro-choice and it's not pro-life. It always preferences the life of the mother, and it always thinks that abortion is a serious and terrible decision. Um, and it often permits abortion in order to preference the life of the mother, but it is certainly not, um, you know, it certainly doesn't let, it thinks abortion is a sad thing um, or something like that. Obviously that doesn't give full, full, that doesn't give full justice to any of this, but I would say something like that. You know, what, what is clear is the mother is always more important than the fetus. And it, what is also clear is that the fetus is always important. Maybe there's my sound bite. I'm very bad at the sound bite. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Any other questions? <laughs> Rachel, come off mute. Hi. I don't want to be like that person who's the only one asking questions, but it didn't feel like anyone else. Was. No, we love you, Rachel. Um, the thing I'm thinking about in this context is that we live in Obviously, we live in a world where we're not just operating under Jewish law and where we're part of a wider society. <clears throat> and I think Sarah knows this. I volunteer for an abortion fund. I help pay for people's abortions. Yeah. And there's something really interesting that I'm struggling with about the question of how the Jewish ethics of all of this line up with the question of people who are getting abortions who I don't have a clue what their religion is. We don't ask. Yeah. Great. So I think the whole question of, given everything we did in the last hour, what would Jewish law think American law should say about abortion is like a distinct and fascinating topic. There's like a whole interesting conversation about what Jewish law thinks um, should be permitted in terms of abortion for non-Jews. There's a whole interesting question in general for Jews about whether we want American law to look like Jewish law or not right, whether it's better for Jews to have total separation of religious law and secular law, or for secular law to be more in line with our religious values is like a deep debate that I cannot answer in the next 30 seconds. I will say there's a fabulous article by Dr. Rabbi Dr. Michael Broid um, on this question, which is entitled, you know, something like, I'm going to get the title wrong, but like, what does Judaism think American law on abortion should be? So I encourage you to check it out. Um, and I would say the precedent that I think is most useful is um, Rav Moshe Feinstein wrote extensively about what he thought American law should be about end of life ethics. 
And he says there basically, we want the government to leave us the bleep alone so that we can make <laughs> our own decisions that are right within our community um, and, and, and not for the American law to resemble Jewish law. Um, and that is, if you're asking me, Rabbi Sarah, that's my position here too, I think, um, because there are situations where Jews are required to get abortions and situations where Jews are um, allowed to get abortions and maybe even, I, I have a hard time constructing it, maybe even cases where Jews are forbidden to get abortions. Um, I think the best policy for us is um, a liberal regime that does not dictate this and allows us to make these decisions within our community rather than a regime that would somehow attempt to mirror this in a secular state. By the way, that happened until very recently in Israel. If you wanted an abortion, you had to meet with a medical ethics committee and they would almost always permit your abortion, but you had to request a permission and it was basically granted on these kinds of um, bases that we saw. And Israel very recently decided that they wanted to move to a, a more secular kind of system. Um, and I believe those committees no longer meet, but Anyways, my position is that it is better uh, not better for the government. Uh, the Lord keep, best blessing keeps the czar far away from us. Uh, let <laughs> us make our own decisions about this and other uh, important uh, medical ethics issues. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much. We're going to go ahead and end right on time. Rabbi Sarah, thank you so much for your amazing class today. We look forward to always continuing to learn from you. And now we have the information to follow your work and make sure that we, we stay in touch. We deeply appreciate all of you for learning with us this morning. And we hope you have an amazing week and amazing uh, Hanukkah and bringing in so much light. Thank you so much, Eddie, for all you did to make this possible. I also want to shout out whoever's Zoom name is I Love Torah. I love Torah too. Thanks all for being here. <laughs> Amazing. Take care.